Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and we will go into the fifth verse of chapter 9. Now this is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who will indeed intercede, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we've started off the new year with a new series entitled Beautiful Feet, Beautiful Hands. And in and through this series, what we are doing is we are exploring 2020's theme on evangelism and hospitality. Now last week, we asked the question, what is evangelism? And we concluded that when the news of God's salvation in His Son is proclaimed through humans to other humans, that is evangelism. When the news of God's salvation in His Son is proclaimed through humans to other humans, that is evangelism. You know, there's a uh, well-known quote by St. Francis of Assisi that uh, the church and Christians today often use. And it's this quote. It's not working. Could you? Uh, yeah, so here's the quote. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, there are a few things wrong with this. The first thing is, St. Francis never said this. <laughs> Uh, he never said these words. Second, uh, this is actually really bad theology. 
Because you cannot evangelize with only actions. You need to use words for evangelism to take place. And this is because the gospel is news. The gospel is news. And news is something that has to be verbally communicated. Romans 10 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Friends, I know that we all believe in evangelism. Um, but, you know, before we get into today's message, I just want to um, ask you to ask yourself this question. When was the last time you verbally communicated the good news of Jesus to someone who didn't know Jesus? When was the last time you intentionally sought after someone so that you can share the gospel with that person? And please, don't be mistaken. Being a moral example and living kingdom ethics in this world is necessary, but it is not a substitute for evangelism. Take, for instance, Jesus Jesus was the most morally upright person. Jesus helped the poor. He healed the sick. But what he did more than anything was he preached. He shared verbally the good news of the kingdom of God. And the reason why I bring this up is because too often I find that Christians are trying to live an example of the gospel without actually verbally communicating it to those around them. How then can they be saved if they have not heard? So what is evangelism? Evangelism is a verbal proclamation of what God has done in Jesus. Now, uh, now that we have established what evangelism is, the next question that I want to explore is this. Why should we evangelize? Why should we do this? Well, you'll find a number of different answers to this question in the Bible, but let me present to you what I think is the simplest answer. Why should we evangelize? The answer I'd like to give is because the gospel is true. What do I mean by this? Well, at this point in Romans, Paul, he just finished presenting the gospel. Paul is saying the good news is that only because of Jesus, we who were separated from God, we who were enemies with him, can now be forgiven, declared righteous, we can be reconciled, and we can be glorified. Now this also means that outside of Jesus, there is no salvation. It doesn't matter your background, your history, your ethnicity, and your morality. If you're outside of Jesus, there is no salvation. And Paul, regrettably, has to acknowledge this about his own people, the Jews. Friends, do you know who the Jews are? The Jews were once God's chosen people. As Paul writes in verses 4 to 5, 
To them belonged the adoption. To them belonged the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belonged the patriarchs. And even it's actually from the Jews that Jesus came who is God over all. Look at this rich history. Look at this blessing and this grace. Look at all that they have received. They were God's people. These people. But Paul says, it doesn't matter. Because they have rejected the gospel, Paul is saying there is no salvation for them. And this is what's causing Paul so much sorrow and so much anguish. See, Paul knows that the gospel is true. And he knows what it means when one rejects the gospel. And because of this reality, Paul, he is broken. Friends, have you ever been broken in this way? You know, someone you know, someone you love, perhaps your parents, your children, your brother, sister, friend, cousin, coworker, or even spouse, because they have yet to receive the good news of the gospel, because they have yet to receive salvation in Jesus, and because you know what that means, have you ever been broken by this? A few years ago, there was a time where um, I was counseling this woman. She was in her mid-40s, and after about 20 years of marriage, she was ready to walk away. She couldn't take it anymore. Her husband was emotionally abusive. She was no longer considered a partner in the relationship. She was just a servant, a slave. So we sat down multiple times. And this one night, tears welled up in the both of us. She started to share how she was so hurt by him. But then she started to weep when she thought about his soul. You see, she was a Christian, and he wasn't. And these are the words that she said. She said this, I don't love him as a husband anymore. But I know that if I leave him, the chances of him spiraling out of control are high. And he might never have the chance to hear the gospel over and over and over again. And as we started to, as she started to share and we started to weep, she concluded by saying these words, I can't leave him because I believe in the gospel. I care about his soul more than I care about my temporary happiness here on Now, I struggled with this for many, many nights. I thought, did I ruin this woman's life? By encouraging her or talking with her or maybe even um, affirming her 
conviction to stay in this marriage because her husband was a non-believer. Was I ruining her life? But you know, I found a lot of comfort in today's passage. If you look at me at verse 3, this is what Paul says. Um, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul in verse 3 is ultimately saying this. He's saying, it breaks my heart that my own people have rejected the gospel. And Paul goes so far as to say, I will give up my own salvation if it means if only my people could be saved. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, Paul is either crazy or he's a liar. But uh, Paul isn't either of those things, right? If you look in verse 1, that's what he says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I really feel this way. If my own people could be saved, I would be cut off from Christ. I would give up my own salvation so that many will come to salvation in Jesus. Paul really felt this way. Paul knew the joy and the assurance of the gospel. But when he thought about those who did not have what he had, he was broken. And so if you actually follow Paul throughout his missionary journeys, wherever he goes, Paul always goes to the Jews. Even though he was hated by the Jews, he was persecuted, he was reviled, he was considered a traitor, they tried to kill him, Paul continued to go to the Jews with anguish and sorrow. He pleaded with them in every town he went to to come to faith in Jesus. Friends, Paul knew that the gospel was true. And, you know, for us, I think, even though we know that the gospel is true, or at least we say we know that the gospel is true, you know, I can say with some certainty that this is not reflected in our evangelistic zeal or lack thereof. It seems that modern Christians, you and I today, believe that the gospel is true for us, but we don't seem to believe that it's true for others. There's a short story uh, by a man by the name of William Booth. For those of you who know, William Booth is the man who founded the Salvation Army. Now we think of Salvation Army as just a humanitarian organization, but at first the Salvation Army uh, was a church and its mission and goal was to spread and preach the gospel to save souls. But William Booth writes this short story. It's about a man who sees a vision. He sees a vision of this dark and stormy ocean, and he sees myriads of human beings plunging and drowning in that ocean. All of a sudden, as people are dying and drowning, this mighty rock rises from the ocean, and its summit towers high above into the sky. And there at the bottom of this great rock in the ocean was a platform, a vast platform. 
And as this rock came up, many who were drowning and struggling, who were perishing, they were saved. They were able to climb out of the angry ocean because of this one person saving them. This man looks around in this vision. He sees that there were a few of those who had been saved on the platform. They went back and they hurried to help those who were still in the waters. They were working industriously. They were scheming with ladders and ropes and boats and other means to be effective. Some even threw themselves into the water, regardless of the consequences, because they wanted to rescue the perishing. But as this man looked around, he saw that there were a few people helping. But he saw most of the people standing around. He was puzzled because he thought, what are these people doing? They were just saved from their death. Why are they just standing around and looking? He noticed that these people on the platform, they became bored. They had nothing else to do. So they started to trade. They started businesses. Some took up the joy of eating and drinking. Some began to plant flowers or attempt to plant flowers on this platform. Some took up painting. Others got involved in other occupations. And they had forgotten from whence they had just come. This writer writes, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled the people. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor, perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, even their own children. William Booth writes this story to to show what he believes is the state of the church today. Either Christians have forgotten what it's like to be saved from death, or we just simply don't care. Comedian uh, Penn Jillette, who is a vocal atheist, once said this in a comedy bit. He said this, quote, I don't respect people who don't evangelize. If you believe that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate people or how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize to them? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point that I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. Friends, why should we evangelize? Because the gospel is true. And if one rejects it, it means that they will be eternally separated from God in hell. Now, this is only half of the story. Yes, we evangelize because we don't want to see people eternally separated from God. 
Yes. But we also evangelize because we want to see people come to know and experience the eternal love of God. And this is what Paul gets at at the end of chapter 8. You see, the gospel isn't a fearful ultimatum. It's not, if you don't believe, you're going to go to hell. No, rather, the gospel is a blissful invitation. It's an invitation into an eternal love, a love that was demonstrated for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, Paul is in anguish as he writes this letter. Not just because his people are dying, separated from God, but because they don't know the inseparable, eternal, unchanging love of God. He looks out and he sees his own people trying to earn God's love rather than receive it. And Paul, he is broken because like little children, they are trying to earn the love and favor of their, of their parents, not knowing that this love is freely given. Paul is broken because he sees a people zealously trying to follow the law so that they can be loved. He's broken because his people don't know that this love of God is not earned, but it is received. He writes this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we evangelize? Because this love of God that we have received, we see that it is void in others. And we desire that they too come to a saving knowledge of God. And we go and we proclaim. We say that there is hope and good news in Jesus Christ. Very early on in my Christian life, uh, I was influenced by, the man, by a man uh, by the name of David Livingston. And I first heard of David Livingston through an, an apologist by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Now, David Livingston is a national hero in England. Uh, there are dozens of books written about him. There's a documentary about David Livingston. Um, even his own journals, countless journals that he wrote while doing missionary work in Africa were all published. However, um, I want to just share with you a little bit about David Livingston, and um, my impression of him was greatly influenced by Ravi Zacharias's original telling. So David Livingston was uh, born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813, 
and from a very early age, he committed himself to become a missionary. These are his words. He said this, Lord, send me where you want me to go. Send me where you want me to go. When David Livingston was about 10 years old, he had started studying medicine, started studying Latin, and he was a student of the Word of God, most importantly. He wanted to become a medical practitioner in the mission field, but most of all, he wanted to become a preacher of the gospel. So when he was about 10 years old, he had memorized Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. Livingston had committed to memorize this because he wanted his life to be guided by the Word of God. Livingston always wanted to go to China. He wanted to spend his life as a missionary in China. But because of the opium war that was going on between England and China at the time, the doors were closed. So he visited South Africa one time. And there he met with a famous missionary by the name of Robert Moffat. As the two stood together, Robert Moffat shared with him these words. He said this, Many a morning I have stood on the porch of my house, and looking northward, I have seen the smoke arise from villages, thousands of villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I have seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages, villages whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope in this world. The smoke of a thousand villages. The smoke of a thousand villages. When David Livingston heard those words in South Africa, he could no longer sleep. He thought about the cluster of African villages where he saw the smoke spiraling upwards. And in his journal, he writes these words. The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages has burned itself within my heart. He goes back to England and he commits to be a missionary in Africa. He arrives in Africa, in South Africa, in his mid-20s, I believe at around age 27. And there he marries Mary Moffat, the daughter of that missionary who, who introduced him to Africa. There, David Livingston continued to venture off into different places. Missionaries at that time, they were in Kiriman, which is a small town in South Africa. They were unable to leave that area because of the African fever. But David Livingston continued to venture up north. People called him crazy. They thought that he would never be able to cross the Kalahari Desert, but he did. He went up north and north and north. He wanted to hit Central Africa. There, as Livingston traveled up north, he set up three missionary bases, and he continued to preach the gospel in all the villages that he went. David Livingston, his goal was threefold. He wanted to spread Western medicine, saving those who were sick. He wanted to eradicate slavery. But most of all, he wanted to save souls. He wanted to preach the gospel. As he continued to do mission work throughout Africa, they faced many, many difficulties. His wife had contracted a disease, and a few of their children had died. As they went back to South Africa, to Kiriman, 
they were debating, what should we do? Should we continue in our missionary efforts? Should we stay here or should we just go back home? And David Livingston, in his journal, he writes these words. Fever may cut us all off. I feel much when I think about my children dying. But who will go if we don't? Not one. I would venture to give everything for Christ. Pity I have so little to give. But he will accept us, for he is a good master. He can sympathize. May he forgive and purify and bless us. And as he looked across the African region, he says, we have this immense region before us. Thousands live and die without God and without hope. Though the command went forth of old, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It is a venture to take wife and children into a country where fever, African fever, prevails. But who that believes in Jesus would refuse to make a venture for such a captain? A parent's heart alone can feel as I do when I look at my own little ones and ask, how shall I return with this one or that one alive? However, we are his, and I wish to have no interests apart from those of his kingdom and his glory. May he bless us and make us blessings even unto death. Livingston lost a few of his children. His wife was racked in pain. Her body was no longer functioning, so she had to go back. David Livingston continued to venture on. He was a frontier, a pioneer, going places where no one has ever gone. He went into villages preaching to the clan's leader and to the village people the good news of the gospel. And David Livingston, his body was broken and beaten. His left shoulder was crushed by a lion. His, his left eye was poked out. He was blind in one eye because he had walked into a branch. His skin was burnt to a crisp under the African sun. Mary Moffat joined him years later, but after she arrived back in Africa, months after, she died. And these are the words of David Livingston as he buried her body. He said, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall place no value in anything I possess or in anything I do, except in relation to thy kingdom and to thy services. Many people urged them, stop, stop. But he kept saying the haunting specter, specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the African morning sun is still burning within my heart. So he continued on, he traveled. He actually hit Central Africa, and from Central Africa, he went coast to coast. He traveled 30,000 feet through the African desert, the plain, the mountains, and the valleys, all on foot. He was lost for a few years. In England, he was uh, heralded as a, as a national hero. And uh, even in America, people revered him. But he was lost. People couldn't find him. 
they had lost contact with him. England and America sent people to look for him. And the person who found him was a man by the name of Henry M. Stanley. Mr. Stanley was sent by New York Herald, a publishing company, because they wanted to do a piece on David Livingston. As Henry M. Stanley finds David Livingston in Central Africa, he says these famous words, Mr. Livingston, I presume, there wasn't a white-faced man for thousands of miles, but when he sees him, he says, Mr. Livingston, I presume. Henry M. Stanley was an atheist. And the first thing he said to him is, Mr. Livingston, I am a newspaper reporter, and I'm here to do a story piece on you. Please do not try to convert me. I am an atheist. Four months later, that atheist bent his knee on African soil, and he gave his life to Christ. And Henry M. Stanley spent the majority of his life publishing stories and biographies, republishing the journals of Livingston so that people can hear his story. Many people urged Livingston to come back home. It's enough, it's enough. But Livingston vowed to spend the rest of his life preaching the good news to the people of Africa. There's this one antidote. Um, David Livingston, um, he was so adamant, he, he was an advocate of eradicating slavery. He knew that slavery first, you know, that, that his own country had such a, left such a mark on um, the slave trade that he wanted to go back and uh, eradicate, get rid of slavery altogether, because he saw Arabian slave traders coming, uh, even Africans, they were selling their own people off. And so he wanted to, he wanted to free the world from slavery. There's this one um, story that happened as he was in the marketplace, Arabian slave traders come and they start massacring people, hundreds of people. They start killing women, children, men everywhere. And instead of running Mr. Livingston, he gets out his, his British flag, he starts waving it. And he yells to the people in the marketplace, he says, come here, come under this flag where you will live. Come here, they cannot harm you. And as people came to him, he started to minister to them and tell them of the hope of Jesus Christ. As Livingston, um, as he neared um, his late 50s and 60s, uh, he was really old, and he went from village to village in Africa, carried around in a stretcher, preaching from town to town. One day, he turns to the person who's carrying him, and he says, Chuma, which was the person, his close friend, he says, I need to rest. I'm too sick. So they bring him home, and before they spill him onto his cot, he says, no, help me get on my knees. And so he gets down on his knees, and he starts praying. The people there, they heard his prayers, his prayers that were so intense, so meaningful, so, per so personal. His friends outside, they say, no, this guy, Livingston needs to rest. So they go in and they see that he's praying. They come back out. They go in, they see that he's praying. They come back out. And at some point, they resolve, you know what? He needs to rest. So Chuma goes in and he starts to shake him by the shoulder and says, sir, you need to rest. 
But there Chuma found David Livingston dead. He died on his knees praying for the people of Africa. Chuma and a few of his close friends decided that Livingston needs to be buried back at home. In fact, if you go to the Westminster Abbey, David Livingston is the only commoner buried inside Westminster Abbey. So Chuma and his friends mummified Livingston, and they carried his body for 1,500 miles by foot for nine months so that they can reach a port and send them back to England. But before they mummified him, they actually took out David Livingston's heart and they buried it under a tree in Africa because that was where his heart really was. Friends, evangelism is a proper and necessary response to salvation. Now, I have only just presented to you the great things about Mr. Livingston. If you read his full biography, you'll know that Livingston was a hard man. He had no friends. People hated him. He left the London Missionary Society because he thought they were too weak. He traveled with men and they all deserted him because he was too harsh. Livingston was willing to give up wife, children, everything. He was so impersonable, no one actually liked David Livingston. But the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand African villages burned within his heart. And his desire to go and spread the gospel was greater than anything else he had. And he went. I'm not saying that we all ought to be like Mr. Livingston. But he knew that we must go forth and proclaim the gospel. Friends, if the gospel is causing you to just simply cherish what you have received without looking outward toward those who have yet to believe, you haven't understood the richness and the depth of the gospel. Either you believe it's true for you and not for them, or you believe it's true for you and for them, but you just don't care enough to share. Every missionary I met in Africa, they said, I'm here because of Mr. Livingston. Why should we evangelize? Because the gospel is true. Because we know that for those who reject it, they are perishing. But through the gospel, there is this blissful invitation to receive God's eternal and inseparable love. And with this heart, I urge you, I encourage you to begin to pray and be intentional in your relationships so that you may verbally communicate the good news of salvation in Jesus. Join me in prayer at this time.